many of you have been graciously uh, bringing words of consolation to me, and I appreciate that. Um, I guess as I process this, I keep sharing it in front of you, but uh, in the la- My mother was 87 when she died. She lived an excellent life. She lived all out to the end. And I'd like to do the same. You know, and, and the challenge, I think my siblings and I were looking at and saying, okay, grandpa and grandma prayed for us many hours a day, prayed for the entire family. My parents picked that up, um, but they also took it a step further. And so the question is, how can I take that heritage and push it further? And uh, so, you know, as I've looked at that, there, I have two distinct memories of her final days that stand out to me. Um, she was a little bit loopy because of the morphine, and so things came out more unfiltered than they might have normally, <laughs> okay? That was good and bad. Uh, but... Two of the good things that stood out to me were that she really wanted to see their current pastor. And he's a man of about 40 that took over a long-term pastor from another pastor. She wanted to encourage him in the Lord. And since her kids are in ministry, you know, she has a particular, had a particular empathy for that. But also, she had this next-door neighbor who's husband had just died of Hodgkin's disease and you know she's in the process of dying of ovarian cancer and she had talked to the wife and um, had encouraged her to pray but really wanted one more shot at sharing the gospel with her and so you know here she is on her deathbed you can barely understand her she's slipping in and out of sleep she's worrying about her neighbor and uh, that was powerful to me, you know. <laughs> I'm going, you know, that's that's quite a standard. Uh, and you know, for me, realistically, I'm in the last third to a quarter of my life, right? And uh, entering that phase, I hope entering. <laughs> but uh, that said, um, in in my folks' last twenty twenty five years. Uh, they've led somewhere between 25 and 50 people to the Lord. And uh, part of that is they were heavily involved in the church until those years and, you know, had served in leadership roles, but that diminished in those latter years, so they got more involved in the community. And so that meant um, leading Bible studies in their senior citizens' housing, and, you know, they they worked with hospice for a while and, and just... They, they branched out. And, and so it's like they didn't stop. They just moved to, into other areas. And so I look at that, and I'm going, okay. <laughs> it's a pretty hard, high bar, but that's something to aim for, right? And just say, okay, let's, let's kick it up a notch, and let's run hard like the others did. So that's, um, that loosely ties into my message, but... <laughs> I'll make some kind of link to make it worth. 
I want to look at the book of Haggai this morning. I'm going to walk through it. It's only two chapters. And uh, usually, when you read this book, you get hung up on the first chapter, and, and often it's, it comes across in giving messages. Uh, you're not giving enough. You know, well, that's really not the essence of the book. And uh, what I'd like to do is just walk through it and uh, take a look at it. But it says, on the first day of the sixth month of the second year that Darius was king of Persia, the Lord told Haggai the prophet to speak this message to the governor of Judah, to the high priest. So Haggai told the governor Zerubbabel and high priest Joshua. You know, he, he takes this message to him, but I want you to note, this is a specific point in time. By attaching it to a king's reign and saying in this month, in this day, it, this isn't just, a, oh, I had a dream, or, you know, it's, it's locking into specific history. And so these names, even though they're unusual to us, like Zerubbabel, uh, so far none of you have named your kids Zerubbabel. <laughs> I'm not putting that past you. <laughs> <It's cool. laughs> Thank you, Mary. <laughs> but uh, April, maybe, who knows. Uh, um, but, but that said, um, even though these names are unusual to us, they are specific people that this, this message is dealing with. And so you have a governor of the, the city or the area, and you have the high priest, and this message is going specifically to them. And uh, these, these, okay, one more broad area. When you read the Old Testament, not everything is historically sequential. So you get a book like Haggai near the end of the, the Old Testament, you think, okay, that, you know, all of these have just fallen in place, and this is right near the end. Well, it, it is near the end, but it's a contemporary of books like Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, this message would slightly proceed their main work. Uh, and so uh, the children of Israel had been hauled off into captivity in Babylon for 70 years, as was prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah. And they have come back to rebuild the temple. They get a good start, but it sits for almost 20 years unfinished. That's where Haggai picks it up, and he's going, something's got to get done. And Zechariah does a similar thing. And, and they're bringing words of encouragement to these two leaders that can make it happen. Um, the, the story of Zechariah is a little more visionary. And in one of the passages in, in the third chapter is this unusual picture where uh, Zechariah is seeing this heavenly scene and the governor, Zerubbabel, no, Joshua the high priest, excuse me, I've got twisting that story. Joshua the high priest is standing before God, and Satan's there to accuse him. And saying, you know, you have lots of filth about you. In fact, the clothes that you're wearing are filthy and disgusting. You don't belong in the presence of God is the essence of the, of the vision that Satan's trying to put out. And, and, and 
Zacharias sees that God steps in and says, no, this is mine. And the Lord's angel steps in and makes his declaration, Satan, you're wrong. Jerusalem is my chosen city. Even though it's fallen apart, it looks like Detroit. Shells. And it's, a, it's a, just a, a fraction of what it used to be. And this declaration's coming out. Jerusalem is my chosen city. And this man was rescued like a stick from a flaming fire. He says, this is mine. And in this heavenly scene, they're told, put clean clothes on him. In other words, God's doing what we can't do on our own. It's an amazing picture because Zachariah gets in on it and he says, put a turban on his head too, you know. I'd love to be interacting in something like that. It just seems crazy to me. But that's another scene that's being presented to these two leaders. And say, God is saying, this is time to do something. Think of what 20 years pulled out of your life would be. My whole Marquette experience would be gone. Much of my Crystal Lake experience would be gone. Child-raising years could be gone. You know, you know, life would be drastically different. But also think of promises and dreams that just sit for 20 years. And they're just kind of, well, it's too late now. Might as well just abandon and make do. Do the best we can. That's the position that these people are in. They had a great start on something. They had a sense of God is about this. And then suddenly it gets shut down. Politically, it was shut down. And they're at this point where they just say, well, you know, let's invest in our houses. Let's Let's just do the best we can. You know, God is good. We'll keep declaring that. We just don't see his hand moving through us to do the dreams that we thought that he'd called us to. You may say, this isn't the right time to build the temple for me. But it's the right time to live in expensive houses while my temple's a pile of ruins. Just look at what's happening. And he goes on to say, you harvest less than you plant, you never have enough. Go to the hills, get wood for my temple, take pride in it, and I'll be worshipped there. Or I'll take pride in it. He says, your life hasn't been going well since you made this decision. You need to evaluate and understand that he's involved, God's involved. He says, you, you, you invested a lot, it just didn't come out. And there's, there's something in this that, that challenges our hearts and say, sometimes the dead ends we're running into are because we've made faulty decisions, our faithless decisions. Not even necessarily turning away from God, but just we have stepped back from what we've been called to do. And things don't work out. And they keep falling apart. And we need to wake up and say, something's wrong. Well, it appears that the leaders themselves had yet to really say, something's wrong. 
And thankfully, God used a couple members within the body of believers that are making this declaration. And that's another part of the beauty of the story. It isn't just one person trying to get things on track, but God's bringing a number of people together and saying, we've got to go back after this project. We've got to pick up the dreams that are ours. We've got to step into this again. We've got to act in faith. He says, you expected much, but received only a little. He says, I made the little disappear. He says, you in all this investment, he says, your hard work will be nothing. It's a wake-up call. It says, Zerubbabel and Joshua in the 12th verse, together with others who had returned from exile in Babylonia, obeyed the Lord's message spoken through his prophet Haggai, and they started to showing proper respect for the Lord. So I don't think it had been defined as a lack of respect as much as just we can't do this. And yet this lack of faith was something that really wasn't accomplishing the works of the kingdom. It says, Haggai told them that the Lord had promised to be with them So the Lord God all-powerful made everyone eager to work on this temple, especially Zerubbabel and Joshua. And they began work on the 24th day of the same month. So he says, not only were there these words of encouragement, but something about the presence of God touched all their hearts. And they began to move forward and do what needed to be done. A second message comes, and uh, he says, speak to Zerubbabel, high priest Joshua, and everyone else. He says, does anyone remember how glorious this temple used to be? This is chapter 2, verse 3. Now it looks like nothing, but cheer up. I, the Lord all-powerful, will be here to help you with the work just as I promised. Don't worry, my spirit is right here with you. You look around, you see things. I mean, their walls were still torn down. Nehemiah is going to come later in, the sto- uh, later in the timeline, so to speak. And so they have all the adversity that these guys faced from the opposition of the neighbors and around. Everything is in rubble. And yet God's declaring, I'm going to be in this place. I'm going to put it back together. My glory is going to dwell here. And then he, he, the picture that Haggai gets even moves off into the future, and he says, Soon I will shake the heavens and the earth, sea and dry land. The brightness of my glory will fill this temple. All the silver and gold belong to me. He's making this declaration. He says, The finances are mine. I can get this done. I'll shake the nations. What's desired by all nations will come, and I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. This word desired is an interesting phrase because the translators wrestle with it, and it's it's like desire of all nations. And in this context, it often gets interpreted as just the finest, gold and silver. But it can have a wider application that even points toward Christ. Desire the nations, what they desire... The leader, though, set all things straight. So there is a, a hint of that even in this, in this word or this phrase. 
He says, I promise this new temple will be more glorious than the first one. I also bless this city with peace. And that has yet to happen in fullness. And so what Haggai's point to even, I mean, when these guys are looking in the future, when a, in the prophetic Old Testament, you know, they're, they're looking, and what we see is a different picture because we're further along in history. And so we look back and say, well, yeah, they rebuilt that. Well, he's looking ahead and he's seeing it being rebuilt, but he's also looking way ahead and seeing something that goes past our times. He's looking in one direction, he's seeing future. We look and we see, well, that's already taken place, and what, is that the future or is that past? We're not sure at times. But that's the picture, the prophetic because it, it has this forward look, and, and it's, you know, he can see things, and it, it can even be sequential in what he's seeing. But because we're living further down the line, some of it is that direction, some of it's out here. But the declaration is being made. There is a peace to rest over Jerusalem that is unknown in that moment, and really unknown in ours as well. And there's a future glory to be placed on that place that is unknown in that moment and unknown in ours as well. That's why I look at Israel in, in all this, and I still believe there is a significance on that region that can't be denied. Now, in Christ, we have... <laughs> We have his presence with us. We have this hope of his return. But God was regularly meeting point in time with people and in location. And I truly believe that he has location in mind even yet. That's my opinion. I'll leave it there. So he goes on, and he has one more message to bring to them. And he gives this illustration, and he says, okay, if a priest is carrying meat to be sacrificed, and he gets dirty, is it clean? Well, no. If, if you touch a dead body, and then you touch a, this sacrificial meat, is it still clean and, and, you know, in their system? No. You know, it's, it's polluted. And so he takes that, and he says, of course it'd, it'd be unclean. He says, that's how it is with this entire nation. Everything you do, every sacrifice you offer is unacceptable to me, but from now on, things will get better. In other words, you've been sacrificing, but it's in this mindset of unbelief. You know, you've been carrying out your religious role, but it hasn't been as an act of faith. It's just been, you know, this is what we do. It hasn't had the stamp of the Lord on it for a while. You, you quit trying. And so he's saying, that's, that's unclean. What we have in the Lord has to be lived out in faith in him. And there has to be this going to him and seeking his mind on things. We don't just assume. And we don't just make do. Do you realize that there are many times where we just make lesser choices 
and assume that that's the hand of God? You ever go out and buy, well, this is what I can afford. Rather than this is what I should get. This is, you know, I'll just have to let that relationship go because it doesn't seem like it's working out. What's God got to say about it? You know, and, and, and we look around us in, in the community and, oh, things are going terrible. What does God say? And what does he want? That's what we have to ask. He says, before you started laying the foundation of the temple, you recalled what life was like in the past. You wanted 20 bushels of wheat, there were only 10. You wanted 50 jars of wine, there were only 20. I made all your hard work useless by sending mildew, mold, and hail, but you still did not return to me. In other words, all these things happening were to get their attention, but they didn't get it. The beauty of this story to me is God continues to speak, and when they don't get it on their own, he sends the prophets to them. That's what a prophetic word should do in your life. It's not a brand new word. It's not a out there, you need to change directions entirely. You've never thought of this. But no, it's, it's bringing to bear what probably should have been understood and believed or received, but you're just not sure. And it's like this affirming thing that says, okay. It's, it's like one more word saying, this is what God wants. You know, when somebody comes up to you and says, I feel like God's speaking this about your life. If something rings true, you're going, oh, that's good to hear. I was, you know, I wasn't sure. Now, if it's just an out there thing, I'd say file it. Maybe not flush it right away. <laughs> but just set it aside and just say, well, that's different. We'll see if that, you know, keeps growing in my heart or not. Anyway, he's, he's bringing this out to them and says, you didn't get it on your own, but I'm sending these guys to you. Today you've completed the foundation for my temple, so listen to what your future will be like. Although you've not yet harvested any grain, feeps, grapes, figs, pomegranates, or olives, I will richly bless you in days ahead. You haven't seen the harvest yet, but I'm going to do it for you. Same day the Lord he said, tells Zerubbabel, and I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and wipe out kings and kingdoms. I'll overturn war chariots and cavalry troops and start slaughtering each other. He says, but tell my Zerubbabel that I, the Lord, all powerful, have chosen him, and he, will be, and he will rule in my name. So he's telling the governor, I have good intent for your life. It's a wonderful passage just to look at it and say, you know, there are times when Making a, just making do is a faithless choice. And I need to wake up and say, what do you really want? And what do you want me chasing? Low returns can be a message from God. <laughs> when things aren't working, it can be one of those moments where you just need to say, what's going on? Is there a reason for this? Finally, a couple things. God's intent is to lead us into good. 
And the beauty of the stories that stands out in this moment to me is that God continued to speak to these people. They'd let it go for 20 years. The dream was dead. And God resurrected it and brought it back and said, let's get this on track. I had a... uh, (laughs) While I was walking through this passage... um, I had an interesting parallel with my life. I take Mondays off, and I try to go out to our land and do a batch of things. We have had rain almost every Monday this summer. I have not been happy about that. It makes things grow, but it does not get things done. And uh, so I'm going, God, is there a message in this? I have been hearing it, and I don't know. You know, and you start feeling personal guilt, and you're wrestling, okay, maybe, maybe, you know. But what came out to me in this is that even though they didn't get the message, God sent someone to help define it for them. And the, the essence of this book is him calling back to them and saying, I'm speaking louder now. <laughs> I'm going to keep talking until you get it. You know, the hope of our lives is, is that he keeps talking till we get it. That there are times when we're, we're not sure. Or there are times when really the dream has died. The vision, so to speak, we're going, well, that must have been flesh. That must have been my ego. Must have been me wanting to get something done and it really wasn't God. 20 years is enough to make a lot of things die. Yet God's coming back and saying, no, you had it right in the beginning. Now let's pick it up and finish. And what was impossible, he's saying, I'm going to make possible. And then he welds the whole group together. That's another astounding thing, that they would all catch it. You know, and... and, It's a beautiful picture of the body working together. You know, the governor, the priest, the prophets, everyone else. And they get it done. God help us to listen and hear and to chase the dreams you have in front of us. Amen.